Our text this afternoon comes to us from Malachi 3, verse 1. We'll read that again. Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So far. Beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ, do you live with the expectation that Christ will return? Scripture teaches us that no one knows the day or the hour that our Lord and Savior will come again. Yet we know at the consummation of all things that He is coming to judge the living and the dead. But so often, that day seems a long way off in our minds. And as a result, many people live as though Christ's return at some future date is nothing to get all that worried about. While there are others who are keenly aware of Christ's promise to return, and they deeply long to see that day come. Often such people have had difficult lives, suffering various trials and temptations that have had a profound impact on their lives. They desperately want to be in the comforting arms of their loving Savior. They desire nothing more than to see His return. But it just doesn't seem to be coming. And after waiting a long time in anticipation of His coming, one can become disillusioned, especially when we look around and see all sorts of injustice and sin going on, unchallenged and unaccounted for even among our fellow church members. It reminds us of the situation that we just sang about in Psalm 73, the Psalm of Asaph. There it says, For there are no pangs in their death. Here it speaks about the rich. But their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride serves as their necklace. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. They scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues walk through the earth. But Asaph the psalmist comes to the right conclusion. The psalmist understands that in the end, the Lord will set all of this straight. You read it in verse 18 and 19. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they are brought low to desolation, as in a moment. They are utterly consumed with terrors. But that's not the conclusion that the Israelites of Malachi's day have drawn. No, they have looked around at all the sin and injustice and come to the conclusion that God simply didn't care. They have become cynical and disillusioned about the Lord's coming, even questioning God himself. And although we might say that we would never do such a thing, in reality, 
don't we all at times become disillusioned about God's plan? When we look around at the chaos in the world, increasing unrest in Europe, terrorism, increase of Islamic oppression. And don't we sometimes wonder where all this is going? Therefore, I preach to you under the following theme and points. Behold, He is coming. The Lord answers the disillusioned expectations of His people about His coming. And we see the people's skepticism about the Lord's coming. And secondly, we see the twofold reality of the Lord's coming. Our text this afternoon emphasizes that the Lord is coming again. Twice in our reading, or in our text, it uses the word behold. The first time it draws our attention to the coming of the one who would prepare the way for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And with the second reference, it announces the coming of the Messiah himself who would come to fulfill all his covenant promises to his people. Promises of salvation. Promises that ensured that sin would be atoned for, that righteousness and holiness would be theirs on account of the work of our coming Messiah. But in spite of the Israelites' awareness, they needed to be reminded that indeed the Messiah was coming. The Lord tells his people, Behold, I am coming. Words intended to combat a growing apathy and cynicism among God's people. And don't we sometimes observe the same cynicism? Even though we live in the aftermath of the redemption secured by our Savior on the cross, we have even more reason to be confident about the fulfillment of His faithful covenant promises extended to us in our baptism. Christ has come. He has fulfilled all righteousness for us with his death and resurrection. And he's now seated at the right hand of God the Father in heavenly glory, having received all power and authority. There he is preparing a place for us in his kingdom. And we eagerly await his imminent return. But in spite of all that, cynicism and apathy can still be with us today. And so this message is for us as well. Behold, I am coming, says the Lord. Our reading begins with Malachi announcing to the people that they have wearied the Lord. This word translated as wearied is not used often in Scripture. But the sense of the word is that the people have burdened the Lord with their words. Malachi is putting it in terms they can understand. The people's words do not display an attitude that is faithful to the Lord. No, the Lord is grieved and weighed down by their words. Much the same way as Isaiah expresses it in Isaiah 43. You have burdened me with your sins. You have wearied me with your iniquities. And to make matters worse, they think they're completely justified to speak that way. They see no reason why the Lord would be burdened by their words. They think that what they are saying is true and that therefore they are completely justified. How have we wearied him, they ask. 
And so Malachi needs to point it out to them. What exactly are they saying that has the Lord so upset? Their first statement in verse 17 of our reading states, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. What the Israelites are saying is that their righteous and holy God is taking pleasure in the evil that's going on all around them. Their loving and faithful covenant God really didn't mean it when he said to his people, You shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. Essentially, they stand in judgment of God. (coughs) Yes, Lord, you have called us to live a holy and respectable life, but if you were really so concerned about righteousness and holiness, why do you allow all this wickedness and evil to continue in our midst? It seems as though you delight in those who live in sin. The statement's reference to everybody leaves us thinking that they were perhaps referring to the heathen nations around and among them. (coughs) But in verse 3, the Lord identifies those being refined of their evil as the sons of Levi and the people of Judah and Jerusalem. That means, beloved, that they're not talking about the others. No, they're talking about God's people. Israelites who were questioning why God would tolerate the evil and wicked deeds of their fellow countrymen or church member. Lord, you have declared covenant curses upon those who are not faithful. Why then does it seem to please you to let such wickedness continue in the midst of your people? (coughs) But is that the attitude? we should display when dealing with our wayward and sinful brothers and sisters in Christ? Is that how our Lord and Savior dealt with the people of Israel that he encountered when he dwelt on this earth in the midst of his people? No, beloved. When our Lord and Savior encountered the adulteress, he said, He who is without sin cast the first stone. And yet, didn't he eat at the tax collector's house? Men despised by the people of the church for being traitors and extortioners? Didn't he heal the lepers and the outcasts? Men and women that no one would associate with? He had compassion on the crowds and those who had gone astray, not wanting any to perish. (coughs) So should our response be that of Christ or that of the Israelites? Sometimes we can be much like the Israelites. You know how it is. When we look sideways at a fellow church member whose lifestyle has shown much weakness in sin, thinking, I'm not sure if he or she is going to make it into heavenly glory. Or worse, I can't see how God would allow such a sinner into his presence. Why doesn't God do something? I can't stand the way that this brother or that sister acts. Simply shameful. It's a bad example for my children. It would be better that they weren't here, that the Lord would remove them from the church and from the presence of decent folk. And who hasn't heard of someone who says, Oh yes, I believe in the Bible, but I refuse to go to church because of all those hypocrites. Really at the heart of that statement isn't such a person saying much the same thing. Why, God, are you allowing all this evil in your church to go unchallenged? The church you're gathering is no good. The people do not reflect your holiness. 
and yet you seem to delight in it, not caring enough to purge the church of such evildoers. Beloved, the question of church membership should never be decided on the basis that there is sin among God's people. Because then we might as well all stay home. No, God himself calls us through the office bearers just like he's calling your sinful neighbor. We have no right to stand in judgment of the call of our God, fueled by our disillusioned expectations of what we think God should be doing. But that's what's going on in Israel. And given the Israelites' first question, the second question should not surprise us. Such cynicism and disillusionment about God tolerating evil leads naturally to the question at the end of verse 17. Where is the God of justice? It's different from the cry of those under the altar in Revelation 6, where the saints cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? These believers eagerly await the just judgment of God. Well, the Israelites of Malachi's time are becoming skeptical that such judgment will ever come. The people of Israel, in their contempt for the evil that they had observed, had the audacity to question God like he needed to listen to them. Come on, get on with it. Where is this God who promised justice? But hadn't God revealed himself to be the very embodiment of justice? Listen to the words of Deuteronomy 10. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And Job rightly states, of a truth, God will not do wickedly and the Almighty will not pervert justice. And so the Lord responds with the words of our text. He sets the record straight Behold, I send my messenger. Behold can be translated as certainly. The messenger that would prepare the way for the coming Messiah was certainly going to come. No, the Lord was not overlooking all the evil that he saw within the church of Christ. He had a plan. First, his messenger would come to prepare the way. And we know him as John the Baptist, the one who came in preparation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And following his coming, our text says, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. The word suddenly has with it the sense of surprise. The people would be surprised when all of a sudden his plan for justice would unfold in their very midst. But it wouldn't necessarily be the plan that they were expecting. The Lord is saying that following the first messenger, Christ would come into the very midst of his people. Malachi is drawing on the imagery we find in Ezekiel chapter 10, where the presence of the Lord had risen above the temple and departed. And now he speaks with certainty that he would return to his temple. The Lord who had withdrawn from the temple where he had formerly dwelt among his people before the exile would return to dwell in the midst of his people once again. Our text says that the one coming was the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. 
We should not confuse this second messenger with the first. No, the messenger of the covenant is none other than our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, coming into the world to fulfill all righteousness. This is the one that the Israelites wanted to see come in judgment, the one they desired to usher in true righteousness and justice. And our text adds emphasis. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts, the ultimate commander of the armies of heaven, says you may question his coming, but be assured that he is certainly coming, but with his coming. You may not see what you're expecting. What you may be surprised to see and what the cynic and the skeptic might be surprised about is what verse 2 of our reading tells us. That no one will be able to stand. The one who is cynical about the Lord's promises, the most righteous member of the congregation to the most prolific sinner and everybody in between, including those Israelites that thought that God needed to judge all those others who were living in depravity and sin. Who can endure the day of His coming? And who can stand when He appears? And the answer that's implied, beloved, is no one. And so what is our Savior's plan? That brings us to our second point, the twofold reality of the Lord's coming. The coming of our Lord Jesus Christ would not be a passive event. It would have a profound effect. One of two things was going to happen according to the plan of our Savior as outlined in Malachi. Either you would be refined and purified or you would be brought into judgment. No one would be able to stand. Either you will bow in reverence or cringe in fear. There is no middle ground, beloved. And so our reading begins to explain the details surrounding the refinement of his people at his coming. Christ there is described as a refiner's fire and as launderer's soap. This imagery refers to the ancient process of refining silver. The furnace was used to burn off impurities. Well, a form of caustic soda similar to lye was used to promote a chemical reaction that would further purify the silver of its impurities. The point is that our God was not oblivious to the impurities among his people, and he had every intention of cleansing those that were his. Our reading says he would begin with Levi. Levi represented the religious leadership the priests who offered the daily sacrifices on behalf of the people, they were to set the pattern for the rest of God's people regarding a pure walk of life. But as we can read in the earlier chapters of Malachi, they had failed in this task. And the Lord tells the people that is where He's going to start, ensuring a renewed priesthood. Christ, the great and final high priest, He came to His temple into the midst of his people to offer the final sacrifice that would cleanse us of all our sin. He fulfilled the Levitical priesthood. But he does more than that. Our reading says he will sit 
as a refiner, applying his work of refinement. And so Christ begins to apply his work with the Levites as representative of his people. And we see the results upon the people. It says, The offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old. Malachi speaks about the former days when the Levites were faithful to the Lord. We can read about such a time in Malachi chapter 2 where God says, My covenant with him was one of life and peace and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. The Levites of former days had loved and honored their God and they had led the people in righteousness. They paid attention to God's law and they presented acceptable sacrifices to their God. But as time passed, they had fallen into sin. They had failed to offer an acceptable sacrifice. But with Christ coming, Such an acceptable sacrifice would again be possible for God's people. Those who place their trust in Christ have a perfect sacrifice in Him, offered once and for all upon the cross on their behalf. And it's true, in this life we are not yet perfected. The refining work of our Lord and Savior continues. He physically came to His temple into the midst of his people some 2,000 years ago to begin his refining work. And of this work, John the Baptist, who prepared the way before him, says he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Christ continues to come to his temple. 1 Corinthians 3 reminds us, Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? Those who are Christ's, are being purified by our Lord and Savior through His Holy Spirit. Each Sunday again, the Holy Spirit applies the refining work of His Word in our lives. And there may be a great deal of refinement required for me and for my neighbor. That's why this is exactly where the worst of all sinners needs to be, in the crucible of our Lord and Savior under the refining power of His Word. His Word calls us to respond in true faith and repentance and to display it in fruitful living as we heard also this morning. And so, yes, there may be much sin in the lives of our fellow believers, but let us not forget that Christ is at work. He is busy refining those that are His. And as 1 Corinthians 3 reminds us, Now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. And so in response to the Israelites' first disillusioned expectation that God was not all that concerned about the evil in the midst of the church, Malachi says, no. He is coming to refine His people. Indeed, that work has started, and it continues today, and will reach its intended goal when Christ returns again. Doesn't Revelation 22 state for us as well, Behold, He is coming. It says there, He is coming soon. God will judge what we have done 
and all our wicked deeds and acts will be consumed in his refining fire so that on the last day those who believe will be presented before his holy throne without spot or blemish, cleansed of all that we have done wrong. But those who do not have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in them can only expect judgment. Malachi responds to the second disillusioned expectation revealed by the question, where is the God of justice? Was God ever going to bring about his justice? And the answer, beloved, is yes. Our reading says, and, which is a more literal translation. Some other translations use the word then. In either case, there is progression implied in our text. The connection, there's a connection between the preceding verse. So first, Christ will come refining his people, purifying them through his word. And then, the Father will come in judgment and justice will be done. Our reading says, I will draw near to you for judgment. That which is wicked will be consumed in the fire. The chaff will be burned up. Our reading says that God will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, the adulterers, and those who swear falsely. These were all sins that were punishable by death in the Old Testament. And he goes on to include many areas where social justice is concerned, citing those who oppress workmen, widows, orphans, or sojourners. In all, those that do not fear him. And isn't that the root of the problem? They do not fear him. Brothers and sisters, God is calling us to fear him. If you do not fear God, then you need to respond in faith to the refining work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ that is being extended to you through the faithful preaching of the gospel each Sunday. You may be the worst of all sinners. But if you put your trust in the refining work of our Savior, He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. The neighbor in the pew next to you might have his doubts. But I believe the word of God presented by the prophet Isaiah. Where he tells us, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And so, brothers and sisters, when we look around and we see much sin in the church... It might be easy to become disillusioned with God's plan. We can quickly become cynical about my neighbor's walk of faith. But be assured, God is indeed busy working out his plan for salvation. Let us patiently await the refining work of our Lord and Savior. Because there are two options. Beloved, place your hope and trust in the refining work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Or suffer the swift and eternal judgment of God. Everyone's work will be revealed by fire on the great day of the Lord. The one who builds on the foundation of Christ will stand the test and receive their reward. Amen.